The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the available lines ahead of the college basketball tournament on the DraftKings Sportsbook app. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility responsible gaming resources. Welcome into the QB SCO show. This is episode 34 brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K-I-S-T. And as always, here to join me to talk about the upcoming enemy quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. He is quarterback one in my heart, Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Follow him over at Pat's Pulpit because he's doing great work on the SB Nation podcast family over there as well. Mark. Week three is mostly in the books. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, buddy. Week three, a strange one. I know we're going to get into some of it. Some people might be taking some L's, myself included. <laughs> Never fun to do that. But um, doing well. I, I did have a historical reference kind of queued up, but I'm going to wait on it. I'm holding it up for the viewers on News Channel 8, The Histories by Herodotus, which my boy Michael kissed his reaction to. What I'm showing everybody leads me to believe that he knows this work and he should because he recommended it to me. You've got the Tom Holland translation, which is the one that I recommended to use my favorite translation yep. of that of that book. And it's it's a massive tomb of a book. It's a doorstop. It is. It's 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 like a brick here. And mostly because we had a gentle listener suggest that he'd love to hear us. This was it. A tweet from Zach Feldman, who was at Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N underscore Zach, Z-A-C-H. It would be super cool if you all compared Alexander the Great and Tom Brady on the next QB Sco show. And I was going to go into that, but I thought, well, this is a trap, right? It's that <laughs> meme. This is a trap because here's an Eagles fan asking me to compare Alexander the Great and Tom Brady on a show for an Eagles podcast yeah. network. So I thought – I'm going to reset this, so I'm going to do a little bit more research. So I'm going to step back here, and I'm not dropping historical reference this week. So I'm going to do it, and I'm. It's, there we go. It's, it's, it's a quick, it's a quick quote that I'm going to do. But I will say, if you're looking for a correlation between Tom Brady and Alexander the Great, you should look into the into the correlation between Bill Belichick and Alexander the Great's father, Philip who really kind of reinvented what the Macedonian army was. So that's 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 a good one. That's a good place to start. That was one of the places I was probably going to go, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I need to do more research. It's a short week here, so we got to condense the game plan, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. Definitely true. As the Eagles are coming off the heels of a 27-24 to devastating loss to the Lions, and we have the Green Bay Packers coming up on Thursday night. So it is a short week, so we wanted to get this in early. And, I, and I'll, we'll get right into it, man. Like Aaron Rodgers, for me, is a bit of a polarizing figure now after... After years of enjoying top two status with the aforementioned Tom Brady. And for a while, you could argue 
for either being the best quarterback in the NFL. Obviously, different play styles, overall results, but those were serious debates that we were having. And the last few years have not been all roses for Aaron Rodgers. Things got weird between him and Mike McCarthy and Blame was placed in different directions by various actors in the widely publicized drama in Green Bay. And now he's operating under new head coach Matt Lefleur. And before we get into the specifics of his game, I wanted to ask you, is this recent downturn of Concess's opinion on Aaron Rodgers a case of something akin to Mark Twain's quote of the reports of my death? are greatly exaggerated. Oh, I, I like the way you did that. Although, for the most part, I think the reports of Rogers' steep decline are exaggerated. But there are numbers to back it up. You look at a lot of different passing metrics, and you can make the case that he's more on par with the Andy Daltons of the world than the Tom Brady's and Matt Ryan's and certainly the Patrick Mahomes of the world. I mean, you, you've seen a drop-off in you know just net yards per attempt, a, a number of different passing metrics. But part of that, I think, was in a sense scheme-related. Mike McCarthy was an offensive innovator when he came to the league. He was using shotgun more than anybody. He was using motion more than anybody. He stayed the same. The rest of the league sort of passed him by. Like he was using motion, I think, on 30% of snaps when he came into the league, which was unheard of mm. what he was doing. And now that's like, it's like you're not even, it's like the Cleveland Browns on Sunday night. You're not moving anybody, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, the offense sort of passed McCarthy by in a sense, but he was rigid in what he wanted to do. That played into a lot of Aaron Rodgers' decline over the past couple of years. What's been interesting, we're going to get into Matt LeFleur in a second. I do like a lot of what they're doing conceptually, but I think we might have a Matt Nagy situation starting to unfold before our very eyes. Oh, boy. Because oh boy. we talked about Matt Nagy. We just Nagy. crushed him last week. Yeah. So. yeah, we kind of took him to task because, like I said, I regretted calling Matt Nagy great in the offseason because what we've seen from that offense, even with Trubisky at quarterback, mediocre Mitch, has not been fantastic. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the on the overall scheme. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit more about Aaron Rodgers. And, and just as a qualifier, we are going to talk about some Carson Wentz and his week three performance later on in the show. But keeping it with Rodgers here, like here are the, some of the things that I saw when I watched him in week three, just got done watching their game with the Denver Broncos. Packers now move to 3-0. and some of, some of the major notes, like he still has one of the best hard counts in the mm -hmm. game. It's almost too good at times because there were a couple yeah. of false starts on the on the Packers offensive line early in that game. Obviously, the ability to create out of structure and on the run is still there. Again, maybe a little bit too much there because he likes to really uh, freelance and do all those things. But I'll leave that to you, the expert. Um, I did like the use of tempo. They tried to go tempo early, but some penalties kind of offset that. He still got the back shoulder throws that kind of defined his uh, his season when they made that little Super Bowl run there way back. Uh, I really enjoyed the fullback wheel to the fullback, mm -hmm. uh, Danny Vitale. That was a near touchdown. So I did enjoy that from a scheme perspective. But I also saw a lot of frustration from him in the third quarter where it feels like he was not in sync with LaFleur and the game plan or it just wasn't working for either of them or or, or one of them. What, what did you feel overall about that week three performance and maybe some of those frustrations that kind of popped up later in the game? And uh, that's kind of where I was going with the Matt Nagy comparison, Mike, because the past two weeks, they've started extremely well. I mean, their first drive against Minnesota in week two was an absolute thin of schematic beauty. They had sort of that burner concept that we see from a Kyle Shanahan offense. And this is the week two game. It was the very first play of the game where 
looks like it's going to be Yankee, but that deep over route then breaks back to the outside, which is a beautiful design. Then they follow that up with a sort of tear motion to the left with the running back. They show screen that way. Everybody's flowing to that side of the field. Then you come back with a dump off running back screen to the right. That was a thing of beauty stringing some of those plays together. And you saw it again early in this game in week three. They come out with 21 personnel on their first drive play action. He's able to create, hits the tight end in the flat, the hard count, get the defense to jump. Did you get the deep post? Everybody froze deep post for a touchdown. They go tempo on their second drive play action boot left with a flood concept. Uh, then they come back with, against a three-man rush on third and 15, which you probably shouldn't do because mm. that plays into what Aaron Rodgers loves to do. It allows him to create and extend, keeps the eyes downfield. I hate using a three-man rush against Aaron Rodgers. I just I think it plays to what he wants to do to begin with. So I love the way the past couple of weeks they've started games, but it seems like they sort of get off script. And, once, and this was a knack on Nagy last year was once he got off the script at 15, then it's hard to become that play, Carl, that like sets plays up and strings plays together. It's much easier when you do it in the offense on Friday afternoon, just put together the script. When you have to start doing it on the fly, that's when it gets tough. And that's a, an adjustment LaFleur needs to make. And I think that's where part of that sort of frustration with Rodgers was coming in uh, during week three. But the hard count stuff is hilarious. Did you see when – their left tackle Bacardi jumped. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that? And Bradley Chubb was like shadow boxing on the other side of the line of scrimmage. It's like, dude, it's just a five yard false start. Yeah. Like, come on, man. But yeah, the hard counts, that's something you got to watch with him because he's going to use them all the time. Looking at this matchup against the Eagles, and we'll kind of go into some different scheme things from the Packers. You know, something that I charted from last year from the Eagles, and, and the narrative is often incorrect, but the narrative is correct in this case, which is Jim Schwartz playing a lot of off coverage. Some of the games that I charted with similar middle of the field closed defenses, the average cushion for the Eagles was substantially larger. There were three opponents that I charted against Houston, Minnesota, Dallas, and I had Denver, Seattle, and Washington as the comparison for defenses that also played those teams uh, against Houston, Philadelphia, about six yards off. Against Minnesota, about six yards off. Against Dallas, five and a half yards off. No other team Denver, Seattle, Washington played more than 4.3 yards off. Seattle was a little bit lower at three yards, but they use a lot of bail techniques. So that kind of plays into those numbers. But my point is here with a specific thing that the Packers like to do, they will take advantage of that outside cushion. And we've also talked about this on the Kiss and Solak show. Schwartz wants to have eight in the box and the Eagles are fantastic against the run in part because of that. But it also doesn't allow those flat defenders to get out there in time. And it really leaves a void in that defense. And one thing that Favre, and Rodgers have done in their careers is a little something, it's a little sneaky. You want to tell the listeners about it? It's a little sneaky. It's a little <laughs> sneaky here. It's it's the Farvian RPO. And we, we got, I put together two clips from their game against Chicago on opening night where they've got run called. The first one, they're just on the outside of the run zone. It looks like they're going to go outside zone to the left. You've got a stacked box type of situation. And backside, you've got Devontae Adams facing about an eight-yard cushion situation. Favre, I mean, again, I did it too. Rodgers takes this awkward drop from center and just throws a quick speed out to Adams on the backside. It's because if you've got eight guys in the box against you and you've got a run play call, but you see eight yards of cushion to your backside receiver, who's an extremely good receiver, why bang your head against the wall and run the football in that situation? Who cares if run play is called? Just throw it to him and you'll see the 
the run block and develop. Later in that game, they had they had crack toss called to the left. This time they're in their own territory. But they've got, again, off coverage over MVS on the right. They just throw a smokescreen to him. Everybody's expecting crack toss. The running back runs through his crack toss steps. You get the receiver cracking inside, but he just takes it and throws it out there. The defender, and I think it was Prince of Mokumar in this case, comes up and makes, no, it was Kyle Fuller, comes down and makes a good tackle, prevents it from being a bigger gain. But this is what they're going to do. If you give him, and Schwartz has consistently done this, six, seven, eight yards of off coverage over their receivers and stack the box thinking you're going to stop the run, Favre's, nope, again, I just did it again. <laughs> Favre, no, Rodgers is going to say, I don't care what we called in the huddle. I'm going to take what you're going to give me. This game doesn't have to be hard from an offensive perspective. So Schwartz might need to rethink that strategy going into this week. Otherwise, Rodgers is going to just keep taking those easy throws and turn it first and 10 into second and three without having to like run into a stacked box. So I'm looking at the athletic article that kind of surveyed 55 different coaches and executives around the league. And what they said about Rodgers was interesting because, as I said before, the claims of my death, the reports of my death being greatly exaggerated within the league, among coordinators, among executives, Aaron Rodgers ranked as the number one quarterback, received 53 tier one votes, only two tier two votes. So it's interesting that the league still sees it. Like one of the quotes is, quote, you see the body language and then you realize the heroics come when there is nothing to lose. So there's that hero ball mentality to Rodgers. We're not quite sure where to place the blame. Uh, another guy said guys like Rodgers get canonized and put on a pedestal so high that it's hard for a coach to keep up. So there's that relationship with Rodgers and there's always going to be that kind of butting in the head of uh, head coach and Aaron Rodgers, especially with a young coach like LaFleur. Overall, we kind of documented the struggles that LaFleur might be having later on in games, but how do you see this relationship between LaFleur and Rodgers? Is it cohesive enough? Is it is it cohesive enough? Is it sustainable throughout the season? I think so because it seems like LaFleur has tapped into sort of Rodgers' creativity and his feel for the game. Like we were just talking about some of those Farvian type RPOs and he's given him the green light to do it. On the first play that we broke down, the one down in the Chicago red zone, Rodgers is looking at LaFleur on the sideline before he does it. So it's almost as if he's like, look, we're on the same page here, right? And you you can see that there's this sort of this like symbiotic relationship to it. So he's tapped into his creativity and has given him the freedom to do that in one sense. In another sense, the way he's done that. In that game against Denver, I charted a couple of different times, but they ran some variation of what we'll call 5-2-5-F post, which is, you know, a basic sort of Coriel type concept. Aikman, Aikman talks about it all the time. It was a cowboy staple when Aikman was there, but they've allowed it to have more flexibility where it could be 9-2-9 where they're running go routes and he'll throw go routes. It could be 5-2-5 where they could run comebacks. It could be sort of a mix of that where he has the freedom to turn them into back shoulder throws. So again, it's a route concept that's called and you draw it up one way. But if Rodgers sees something or a leverage advantage or if he and his receiver feel something, they can sort of expand the play call as it's called by the by the coach on the sidelines. And so LaFleur has part of these younger coaches that realize that there's more than one way to approach offensive football and you have to have the fluidity in your offensive structure and in your designs to react to what the defense is doing. And he's tapped into that with Rodgers, who is doing this stuff anyway and wants to be that sort of creative, free spirit type of quarterback that Mike McCarthy didn't want to have running this offense. And so you put that together, it's allowed LaFleur and Rodgers for the most part, I think, to be on the same page. It, it, how wild is it that 
an Air Corps Yell staple like 525F post. Right. It's still around in case. It, it, it's still – I mean, look, when you get play designs that work, yeah. you keep them in. It's like, look, Mills Concept. That's a Steve Spurrier yeah. thing that he came up with for Ernie Mills because they ran it so often. And now everybody knows what Mills is. Everybody's running Mills. It's mesh. You know, that dates back to the 70s. Yeah. You know, now how many times did the Eagles run mesh? How many right. times do the Patriots run? Like everybody's running it now. If it works, you're going to find a way to get into the playbook. You might need to expand it and, you know, tweak it a bit. But if it works, it works. So with what you know about the Eagles defense, how they've performed this season and what you know of Aaron Rodgers and how he's performing right now, what he's capable of, you know, his ceiling his floor. Are you are you concerned for the Eagles defense coming into this matchup? Because they have been eaten up a little bit this season. I think there's cause for concern, to, to, to put it mildly, um, going into this game. We just saw what Matthew Stafford did to them on Sunday, the defense struggling the times. Oh, yes, there were some other things, a kickoff touch on return and yeah. things like that, some fumbles and things like that. Yeah, you know, but the Eagles have, you know, we saw what Case Keenum was doing to them early in the game. And I think that Washington offense, to their credit, Jay Gruden has done a good job. He's played to Keenum's strengths, but you've seen some of that. We've seen what Atlanta was able to do to them, you know, trying to, you know, Eagles had a chance to close out that game and the defense couldn't get it done. Now, I think... If you're Jim Schwartz, this is a big ask, but if you you change the defensive alignments a bit, you can take away some of what they want to Whoa. do. But I Whoa. see you shaking your head. <laughs> what are you? Whoa. And I'm guessing we're not going to go down that road. So, yeah, there's some cause for concern here. Okay. So that that's alarming. And, of course, we're going to continue to – Happy Monday, kids. <laughs> We're going to continue to break down this Packers-Eagles matchup throughout the week on a short week, an abbreviated week here at BGN. When we come back here on the QB Sco Show, we're going to talk about some Carson Wentz and uh, possibly some other quarterbacks around the league that, that Mark has watched. And that's up next here on the QB Sco Show. We'll be right back. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back on the QB Sco Show, episode 34, brought to you by SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, Michael Kist, here with QB1 in my heart, Mark Schofield. Mark, brother, I know you were watching the Carson Wentz performance from week three against the Lions this week. And let me tell you, drop, 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 and just not a whole lot of run support, to use a baseball term, from the supporting cast of the Philadelphia Eagles receiving options, which are currently depleted at the time. There were concerns about chemistry with some of the younger wide receivers, with Mac Hollins, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, excuse me, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, continue to do that. 
But what did you think overall from Wentz? Can you really ask for much more in a quarterback in that situation? Because I thought he played some winning football. I, I thought he played a, a great game and I was impressed. And actually, after I got done watching it, I had had this thought about his game and how his season has gone to date. And when I saw numbers to back it up, because I was impressed, you know, going through that game, how he fared on third down situations. And I saw somebody tweeted out today that of the 25, this is from Cody Swartz, of the 25 quarterbacks with at least 20 pass attempts on third down this year, Carson Wentz is fifth in passer rated, 127.7, and first in touchdown passes, five. That's on third downs this year. And QB rated, yeah, it's it's a statistic. It's not the be-all and end-all of quarterback play, but I thought he was fantastic on third downs. I mean, you had the scramble where he picked up 16 early in the game. That was on a third and six. You had a third and seven on, in the second quarter, the 13-24 mark, where he had a fantastic throw on an out route to move the sticks there. They had a stop route to Aguilar on a third and six, also on that same drive along the left sideline. He was pressured, but puts it right on him, which is dropped. That was a drop there. I loved a third and three play at the 743 mark of the second quarter. If you wanted to see Carson Wentz get faster with his mind, watch this play. It's a mirrored curl flat with a wide deep sit route over the middle. He reads it one, two on the left side, the flat to the curl. Both are covered. He comes to the curl on the right. That is covered. Then he throws his fourth option, which is the deep sit route to the tight end, and he sticks it in there for a first down. The next play, Sanders fumbles. They recover that one, but a couple of plays later, you get the Sanders fumble that's lost. That play on a third and three situation was the play that I thought maybe is the best I've seen from Wentz this year in terms of that process and speed at the quarterback position, which is what I wanted to see from him this year. Get into his fourth read there. I loved seeing that play. So um, there was another example of it too um, later in the game, sort of getting to late reads. I love the design, the second and eight in the fourth quarter at the 11-minute mark. Jet motion, four verticals with a halfback seam to Sanders. Mm. That's right out of the read to McVeigh, now to Doug Peterson school. You know, teams have been using that. That was a beautiful design. I liked when they went tempo. Um, I was really impressed with what Wentz did. And like you said, look, you use the baseball analogy, run support. He didn't get a lot. I mean, it's like a pitcher going out and throwing a 12 strikeout, you know, three hit. You give a one run on a cheap loop single or something and you lose because you guys can't help you out. You talked about earlier with Rodgers in the three-man rush about that's something that you don't want to do. The Lions used a lot of three-man rush against Wentz. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's something that other teams may have seen something? Maybe other teams will try to experiment with. I thought Wentz was a little shaky with his pocket movements with just the three-man rush. So there's a little bit right. of a concern there. Benjamin Solak had pointed that out in the recap show. I agreed with him there. There's that clip of where Wentz breaks the pocket to the yeah. right on a three-man protection, and there's a bunch of uh, offensive linemen who think either the ball's already out or they don't know where the pocket is standing around, and it looks really bad. It looks like a Willie Beam in any given Sunday. They won't block for him kind of kind of deal, right. but I think that's a little bit overblown. But what did you see in that regard? Yeah, and that, and that clip you're talking about, it's hilarious. People, The person that put it out put it under the guise of, you know, he's getting his offensive line crushed. And it's like, it's eight seconds into the play. I mean, what else are they going to do? I I think the decision there might be, look, if you're playing with backup receivers and guys that aren't experienced, you drop eight into coverage, they're not going to have the feel for finding the soft spots and zones. You drop eight, they're not going to know exactly how to sit down or how to run to grass and things like that, the way that, you know, the Jeffries and the Deshaun Jacksons of the world will. And so you take away those options and it has to force Carson Wentz to try to buy some time and hope somebody breaks free. It's sort of the flip side with, with Rodgers. You know, the reason why I don't like rushing three with him is because A, he's got receivers that will be able to find those zones and B, he's so good at creating. Wentz is great at creating with his legs, but if the receivers aren't doing what they need to do against eight-man coverage schemes, it's not going to work. Yeah. 
and they were doubling Ertz a lot too. And Ertz is probably the best receiver on that team of finding those open voids. Yep. So the Lions were like, hey, we're going to take we're going to take away Ertz. We're going to make these other guys get open. We're only going to rush three, and we'll we'll see how it sorts out. So, yeah, I did like right. that game plan there from the Lions, a little bit unconventional, but they weren't. I don't think they were going to get a pass rush anyway, so you might as well go the coverage route with it. Um, anything else from Wentz that you saw in the game? Any other observations, or maybe we can move on to some of the other quarterbacks that we saw this week because there were some performances that I feel a little bit uncomfortable with uh, bringing up here. On the QB Sco show, yeah, I mean, we we can duck that, and we we can still come back to some of what you know Doug Peterson had done. Look, they had it was Ertz here who ran a Miami route first and ten at the eleven fourteen mark. I liked some of the twelve personnel stuff. You know, we thought that was going to be a big part of the game plan this year. They didn't get a chance to do it last week. They had some twelve personnel stuff, which was good. Um, I like I said, I loved when they went tempo. I thought when they went tempo, went seemed comfortable. It seems like he has a really good feel at the line of scrimmage for sort of taking control. Of the offense, so I think they should try going tempo more. You know whether they get the guys back or not, because I think that's a nice way to get Wentz comfortable and let him have some feel for what's happening with the lineup scrimmage. And you know, coming back on a short week, it might be a good thing to do that as well, because it was part of their game plan this week. It won't be a big lift to install it for you know this Thursday night game coming up. One thing that surprised me, and I'm pulling up the stats right now because I charted this last night. But one thing that did surprise me, and I wonder your opinion on this. Before the game, me and me and Benjamin Solak had argued for more play action from under center. Um, the, the Eagles are actually a little bit better at it from, from shotgun, typically just looking at the stats and whatnot. But this is what surprised me. In week two, we knew that the Eagles had to scrap a large menu of 12 personnel plays that also involved play action. So I understand that they only ran three, three play action plays in that game. In this game, only 16% play action. Now, they had three explosive plays of those seven, three explosive plays from play action, three of their four explosive plays in the game. They were 12.6 yards per play on play action. They took a sack, but they did also have a 57% success rate. So it was efficient. It was explosive. And I understand that Dallas Goddard is extremely limited in this game. Doesn't take a whole lot of snaps until later on in the game. You can kind of get in the feel for it and everything like that. But at the same time, like some teams don't even have a Zach Ertz. The Eagles have Zach Ertz and they have Dallas Goddard as limited as he is. I don't necessarily understand why that would completely nuke your entire play action offense when it's something that was definitely effective for them in this game. I was surprised they didn't go back to it more. I'm very surprised they didn't use play action more. And like you said, look, that Miami route I was just talking about with Ertz, that was off of play action. They had another play action play where they he opens Wentz does to his left to throw a swing route, but then you get that little pop release off the line where Ertz chips and then releases into a, into the flat to the left and that was a big throw that halfback seam to Sanders that was off jet motion play action mm-hmm. they could have done that more one of the sacks interestingly enough and this was something I did want to bring up I'm glad you brought this up Mike it was a play action play they had Dallas Goddard in pass protection on the right edge now if he's limited number one and one of the things that's a struggle for tight ends coming into this league is the blocking aspect of playing the position yeah. I don't think it's a smart move to leave a limited Dallas Goddard on the right edge responsible for one-on-one against a defensive end. Maybe just period, but especially when he's limited. I thought that was a head-scratcher of a play call. I understand, look, you'd want to re- – it's a two-tight two end look, two win tight ends to the right. You want to release Ertz into his route. I get it, but give him some help or do something. Don't leave him one-on-one, especially when he's banned up like he is. Frustrating. 
from the Eagles yeah. in that regard, that they didn't go back to it more. I agree on the Goddard one. Like I thought when I when I saw it initially, I thought Goddard was going to chip and then release. Chip and release, yeah. To give his right tackle some help and, and buy more time for the pocket. But that wasn't the case with that. But either way, I mean, the Eagles got fantastic production out of play action. Would love to see more yeah. of that on Thursday against the Packers. So we'll see what they decide. I mean, they ran a bunch of play action last year, so there's no reason they can't go back to it. And they, like I said, there's no reason a limited Dallas Goddard should prevent you from from doing that because not every team right. has two starting tight ends, starting caliber tight ends. But anyway, uh, Mark, you watched some other guys on Sunday, and maybe we can touch on this briefly because it's starting to, and it's only one game, and I know we look good in the preseason, but it's starting to look like Daniel Jones might actually be an NFL quarterback worth reckoning with. Again, only the One Bucks. Game. The Bucks. It's the Bucks are bad. The Bucks are a terrible team. We understand that. But for what he could have done, for what he was asked to do in that game, he performed pretty well. He performed extremely well. And what's fascinating, talking about Carson Wentz and facing pressure and things like that, Jones was pressured on. This is there's some PFF numbers like I tweeted out from Pat Thorman and, and Scott Barrett. Daniel Jones was under pressure on 47% of his dropbacks, <laughs> which is the third highest of week three. Goodness. He completed, here we go. 80% of pressured attempts wow. for 233 yards, two touchdowns, and a perfect 158.3 passer rated. Holy now, he did have the fumble, but holy crap, dude. Yeah, we'll get to the ball security in a second, yeah. but that's the fourth most pressured passing yards by any quarterback in any regular season game in PFF history, which covers 2007 to 2019. That's a pretty, that's not a small sample size. <laughs> and over that span, Mike, there are 1,674 instances of a quarterback attempting at least 12 pressured pass attempts in a game. Jones is the first to record a perfect passer rated. He's it. He's historic. the list. Wow. His, a historic <laughs> debut from Daniel Jones, whom the gentle listeners remember I crushed the Giants when they made that pick. Same. Crushed them. I mean, a lot, everybody did. Everybody did. Now, partly it was because they could have drafted a quarterback last year. Mm. So it gets it into that running backs don't matter sort of realm of Saquon Barkley. Why would you do that? Partly because, look, Daniel Jones, sixth overall, I feel like everybody, myself, yourself included, thought that's just too early for this kid, period. Like, if you want to do it late first round, like, fine, I get it. Second round, probably the sweet spot for his value, but that's a little bit rich. He's performed extremely well preseason yesterday, and he is an example of why play action matters. Play action is a cheat code. They couldn't run the ball yesterday. Barkley was hurt. They come out without Barkley on the field. The first play of the second half, a play action look, a crosser to Evan Ingram, 75 yards to the house. They couldn't run the ball, but they could still throw off of play action. So if you're looking to put together a game plan by Jeeves, have some play action in there because it is an absolute cheat code, even if you cannot run the football. Yeah, just another piece to throw on top of the mountain of evidence that says you don't need an elite running back. You don't need an elite running game. You don't need four to five yards per carry established. You can run play action no matter what, especially if you're going up against Nate Gary. But that's a whole different discussion for the Eagles. I put that up on Twitter. Nate Gary is just awful at reading play action. Anyway, a little quick Eagles note for you there. Uh, You mentioned the ball security with Daniel Jones. Is that a cause for concern? Is that something that you saw from his college film that he might need to clean up? Or is that just an instance of he's moving up in the pocket? Shaq Barrett makes a great play. I think it's more the latter right now. The the deeper issue that I want to watch is now we're doing this is it's Monday early afternoon. You know, we haven't seen the all 22 yet. Were some of these these great pressure numbers that we're seeing from him, the ability to make throws from crowded pockets, are those 
creations of his own mind right. in a sense. Because if he's got routes that are breaking open and he's not throwing them and he's in then inviting this pressure in a sense, though that's a bigger area of concern. If it's a situation where, look, routes are covered and he's just sort of buying time to create, sometimes the ball's going to get knocked out of your hands. You might need to work on keeping that offhand on the ball. Andrew Luck was incredible at that. Mm. But if it's just a situation where guys are covered and he's extended with his feet and sliding and moving and the ball gets knocked out, I'm fine with it. But if it's a situation where routes are open and he's not trusted his eyes yet, that's obviously something he'll need to work on anyways, a young quarterback. But that might be something that maybe takes a little bit of the shine off his performance if we get into the film where we're like, man, he's got guys running wide open and he's not pulling the trigger. Yeah. I mean, why, is, why are we here, you know? Yeah, without the All-22, we are in fact blind. So none of what we said about any of these Week 3 performances yes, matters. Yes, just throw it all out the window. We don't, know, we don't know what we're talking about. Well, we don't know what we're talking about anyway, but that's why the gentle listeners love us. <laughs> so thank you, Mark, for joining me on this abbreviated week so we could get this show in early and preview some Aaron Rodgers against the Eagles. Also, of course, talk some Carson Wentz and some other NFC quarterbacks here on the QB Sco show. That's going to do it for us today. Remember, smash the subscribe button if you want to continue getting this fantastic content. Leave five stars. Leave a funny review. Follow all of us on Twitter. Follow at BGN underscore radio to get notified when these shows are dropping into your feed. And we will catch you next time here on the QB Sco show. G-N!